You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking. Welcome to episode five. This is the podcast that aims to explore mental health within football. Let's see who we've got on the show today. Hi. Uh, yes, my name is Carl Anker. I am the Southampton FC reporter for The Athletic. So my job is a football journalist. I work for the new kids on the block, The Athletic UK. And my job now is, I think, 80% of my day-to-day awake life is, is figuring out what's going on with Southampton Football Club, past, present, hopefully future, all the weird esoteric things, both in terms of sports science and what my friends like to call sports humanities with Southampton Football Club. Uh, Could you tell us why you agreed to do an interview for us? Um, because you asked me nicely. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yes, yeah. I've, done, uh, I've done a lot of work from, with Calm, um, the mental health charity campaign against living miserably. And uh, quite a few of their campaigns revolve around football. As one of my best mates who once said, football is the idea of spending billions and billions and billions of pounds on competitive sport just so you can get a bunch of men who are just finally comfortable enough to hug each other and say, I love you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there is, men are quite difficult. I don't, I don't want to say men are quite difficult. It, it can be hard to open up and it can be hard to, to express your emotions easily. And I think it's sport or Indeed, any form of hobby can be a very interesting lockpick to get people to open up about stuff. And I think, you know, especially in England, traditionally, the men of this country like football. And the men in this country spend time with each other because of football. Before I introduce today's co-hosts, we'd just like to briefly mention the FIPRO article that was written in The Guardian. Uh, FIPRO is the International Federation of Professional Footballers. Uh, they reported that since the outbreak of coronavirus, the number of professional footballers that are reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression has doubled uh, since since football shut down. Now, obviously, this is a, a positive sign that people are accessing services, but I think it's also important to make sure that those people are pointed in the right direction. And the same to everybody who's listening. It's a difficult time at the moment being under lockdown, and I think we're all missing a lot of the normal stuff that we'd be doing at this time. So I'm going to introduce my co-hosts one by one. I'm going to ask them one thing that they've been missing whilst we've been on lockdown that they may have taken for granted beforehand. So, Ryan, how are we doing, mate? Hi, mate. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. So, one thing you're missing since we've been on lockdown that you may otherwise have taken for granted? Um, there's quite a few things I'm missing, but I'll, I'll get killed by my other half if I didn't say it was here because we were buying a house in February and it fell through and now we've been <laughs> social distancing because my dad wasn't very well for over four weeks now so if I didn't say here I, I think I'd be in, in some bother like but no but generally it is just um, seeing most nights of the week and obviously it's been a, been a, a little bit of a while so I have to say we misses. And Katie how are we doing? Um, okay I Oh, it's dead easy for me to 
today has just been one of those funny days, but I am missing other people. Just being able to stand next to other human beings and have a conversation, just having that socially distancing thing where you're always mindful of not getting too close and it gives you like a little bit of anxiety. So yeah, I'm missing other people at the moment. And finally, uh, a man who I often social distance from, it's Anthony Olsen. I can tell you that's a lie. That you is a not, lie. You come closer to me than any other human <laughs> imaginable. Uh, before this descends into something we don't want it to descend into, uh, what are you missing that you would have otherwise taken for granted, Ant? Uh, do you know what? I think I'm, I'm actually I'm missing going to, going to football with the with the lads we sit with. Um, We've been to loads and loads of games over the past, I don't know, 10-plus years. And I think when you don't have that chance to go and see them every now and then and you're only talking through WhatsApp groups, it becomes a little bit harder. Um, so, you know, I think that's probably my main miss is, is just getting out and, and seeing them. I think it's a little bit easier when you when you put a face to the words. and um, Yeah, I think that's probably my main miss. Um, and obviously we've got... Carl Anker on the show today. And you and I drove down to Southampton to interview Carl, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I uh, I took a while getting down there in the old sturdy Clio. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a good journey going down. It was a bit difficult coming back. Um, and it was a really good day. It was a little bit awkward when we visited him in the coffee shop. But after you know, Ryan's just said before, um, talking about football with him for about twenty minutes was uh, you know it all. All uh, became a lot easier, and we got down to it and asked him a, a few few questions, and he gave us some amazing answers. Yeah, absolutely, and I think in the end we were there about six hours, which was probably five hours longer than we thought we were going to be there. But it was uh, he was such good company, and he was very generous with his time. So, and he bought us a pint as well, didn't he? At the end of the day, that was nice of him. He did, yeah, he did. It was lovely, lovely little Irish bar as well. I think it was, it was, and. Um, and obviously, every episode we have a theme. Ryan, do you want to talk us through today's theme, mate? Yeah, of course. I unfortunately wasn't there, but I've heard it back, and it, it sounds brilliant. And uh, today's theme is therapy, healthy work-life balance, and dealing with racism. I think Carl was extremely open and upfront in his interview, and he discussed dealing with poor mental health in his work and social life, and how his family reacted when he told them he was dealing with ill mental health. He also explored coping mechanisms that work well for him, uh, including why it's good to cry, other than when watching England crashing out of a major tournament. And Katie, one of the things that Carl talks about is the access to therapy, obviously yeah. through Men2, which is the organisation that you run, you do signposting to, to different therapy groups. Yeah, so what we do is we provide like a navigation service where you know, any guy can go on, and women as well, can go on to mentoarmy.com and they can have a little look at different services that are available, whether it's services in local communities or online, um, national and local, and they can choose something that appeals to them that they would feel able to engage in to help them through their mental health difficulties. And... Um what was that website again, Katie, just in case people didn't catch you? That was mentoarmy.com. Fantastic. And you're on Facebook and, and Twitter. and, and Yeah, the... we're on all social media platforms. Fantastic. Well, you've heard enough from us, so here's Carl's interview. It's a podcast about men's health and men's mental health. 
Um, and obviously we've mentioned before that men don't really talk too much about anything really over to do with football or what the result was last night. Um, so I was just wondering, do you have any opinion on why that might be? And have you ever had to go and speak to someone about those feelings, about those emotions that might have popped up and you weren't able to kind of um, explain them to, to your friends or to family? Or It's a really big question. Um, so yes, there's this idea that men don't talk, which I can agree with to an extent. So there is definitely something about the way men codify our conversations and the way we talk to each other that makes it weirder, makes our conversations a lot weirder. There's a, anyone that uses Reddit, there's a, there was a Reddit thread that went out recently um, and it was from a woman who goes, what? What is it that men? What is it that men would like women to understand about male friendships? And the top comment from this dude was basically, um, "I can spend all day with my best friend, and I have no idea what he's doing or how he's doing. Just so I can spend the entire day talking to my friend, and I will talk to him about football and films and um, cars and whatnot. But I will have no idea what the mental health state is. And I don't, I don't think that's men don't talk. I think men talk about." just different things so last Friday I went to visit my friend we went to the pub we had some pints we talked about work and we talked about possible summer holidays and whatnot. and I said oh what are you doing this weekend and he said oh I'm going to do this I'm going to do this I'm going to do this and it's my birthday on Monday and my brain just screamed oh yeah it's your birthday on Monday I completely forget it was your birthday on Monday right? that's what Facebook exists for this is it right yes. um, uh, I completely forgot it was his birthday on Monday and I had that sort of thing where I left the pub and went wait what's his middle name and <laughs> uh, sort of what does he do for a living yeah, and I, that sort of how long have you been friends with this person I've been friends with him for about five years he's one of my, he's one of my best mates I, if that boy gets married I'll be really annoyed if we're not groomsmen um, but and he's one of the better friends I have in talking about feelings. And we do talk about feelings. Yeah. We do go, how are you doing? And we do, if we have bad days at work, we do go, I'm having a really bad day at work. Or we have a big, like, if it's the anniversary of something bad that happened, it's like, I will check up and be like, hey, I know it's the day you maybe lost a family member or not. Or, but, you know, I'd say maybe 45% of our conversation is just caps lock screaming football players' names at each other. <laughs> I wouldn't say men don't talk. I'd say men talk about different things, and sometimes you can, it you can be can be really easy to talk to someone for four hours just about football, where you want to talk about something else. Like right now, I've, we said this before we started, right? But I'm a football journalist, right? I spend sixty hours a week talking about football, or watching football, or reading about football, and I've just moved to a brand new seat in Southampton, and I haven't got many friends. And if I say, does anyone want to go to the pub? the first couple of people that want to talk to me are football fans. And we go to the pub and they want to talk to me about football. And my brain is just going, please talk to me about something else. Just please, God, talk to me about whatnot. And my thing now is, you know, I have taught myself that if it's talking about football, I will go, lads, can we talk about something else? And I will go, tell me about your girlfriend. Yeah. Which caused a bit of friction recently. Like, Why do you keep asking everyone about their girlfriend? You try and nick them. Like, no, I just, just <laughs> want to talk about something else. I think it's not that men don't talk. It's just that we've we've been conditioned that there's certain safe areas to talk about, yeah. and there are certain risky areas, right? So, um, 
there are certain members of my family I don't particularly see eye to eye with. So I will only talk to them about football because if we talk about politics, it's going to be yeah. Yeah, beef. Yeah. Politics is never the easiest. Right. Yeah, so they with family. So yeah. we've got that sort of situation. Whereas I've got other mates where I don't know why I didn't ask Jason how his wife is doing. Yeah. I just didn't. And I need to get in the habit of doing that more. And I think that's something we need to do more. Um, to answer your question about um, have I ever spoken to someone? Yes. So uh, I had, I'd say I've had three very big, uh, I'd probably call them mental breakdowns in my life. Uh, uh, one of them was triggered by uh, a really, really unpleasant work situation around about 2016, where uh, by the end of it, I like, pretty much shaved my head bald. And then by the end of the situation, I was uh, released from my job in November 2016. So lost my job before Christmas. Never the best. Sort of held on until Christmas. Very first day after the Christmas break, marched down to the GP and went, I think I'm really depressed. Finished the... Um... So you get, you know, like it's like things called IABT or whatnot form, mm. where you sort of list, you know, how, you know, you... You get all these symptoms and you list how uh, how often or how on often yeah, on a scale that's got like little smiley faces and yeah, yeah. Faces. so you, you do that and uh, I filled that out and I got a score of 29 and the GP went if you had scored two more or basically made a comment if you had scored two more we would have had to make some serious calls and yeah. looked into you getting sectioned and I went oh so I'm not doing well at all <laughs> um, and that was like my first big big like oh I, I, I'm living with a mental health condition like a wake well, up call well I'm depressed yeah, yeah. Um, I was like well I think I've been it wasn't so much like, oh my god but it sort of retroactively made other things in my life make more sense because I'd been in that state before yeah. at times at university and times you know in my late 20s and eight, late 20s in my late teens and early 20s and I went oh I feel like that again and if a doctor's going yeah that's massively depressed I'm like oh I've been massively depressed before I just yeah. didn't get help um, so that time I did it sort of serve to clarify things and feelings from maybe when you were younger that maybe you hadn't acted on that started to make sense a little bit more once you'd had that conversation. I mean, anyone going, you are so depressed. We would you, you we'd consider getting yeah. trained medical practitioners because you might be a danger to yourself. Is a bit of a what? Is that um, kind of like a moment where you should take a? Wow. Like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And it was sort of okay. It was sort of like I felt like good. Like I sorted this out, and I went to talk to someone right now. And also, what happens next? And what happened next was I went on around of antidepressants. I went through a series of therapists because ther- finding therapists is very, very hard. And we can talk about that later if you want to talk about. Um, and yeah, I sort of. I, I wouldn't say like got my life together or whatnot, but just sort of. I remember at that point in time when I talked to my friend, the friend I just talked to you about, and he said, "How are you doing?" I went, "Mate, I'm just I can't keep crying." Yeah. Uh, I can't keep crying. I'm so sick of crying, and I can't. I can't keep feeling the way I want to. I'm feeling, and there's only there's only a, a couple of options for me to stop feeling this way. And he's basically you need to talk to a GP, which I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I think that's probably the most positive way I managed to get myself out of feeling that because there were other options and knock on everything every day I thank 
the almighty if the almighty's out there that I took that option yeah um, and yeah I, um, it was a hard process I wouldn't even say I like, got back to my feet or it was an overnight thing or if it, I felt better after a year and it's 2020 right now and while I'd say I haven't felt like I don't want to exist anymore for a long time well for a good chunk of time I would say I do feel those feelings sometimes and then I also realise like through therapy through talking to people through a number of other processes I understand why my brain does that I understand what things tend to happen in my life for me to get for my brain to reach that conclusion and I also now understand that that is a temporary state and what I need to do to get out of that state which takes practice and discipline and you need to talk to a lot of people some of them trained medical professionals some of them people that you trust that aren't trained medical professionals but hopefully are just really nice and kind and care about you in that way and then even then you can still not have great days but that's just part of what life is unfortunately I think when when I haven't been through something similar myself it's um, it's quite interesting to to get there to get to that GP stage and you know there's something wrong with me there's something wrong with me and when you eventually go down that therapy you, you kind of realise that well this this person's in a job because there's quite a lot of people coming here so it's not that there's something wrong with me this is actually becoming a little bit more normal this is just people going no I'm actually struggling and when you find out that other people are I for me when you find out that other people have struggled it kind of shares that problem for one like we I've said this all the time, we cannot have any conversation about mental health without talking about the NHS and talking about cuts to the NHS and talking about what's currently going on by our government to our mental health services and to all of our health services. So let's really break it down. I lost my job in November and there was a point in November where I was just out of it, shaved my head and there were certain, there were certain things I could not do because I was considering not being around anymore Mm. and then it took me until January the very first day of January after the Christmas break before I went I'm going to go see a GP and luckily a GP saw me that day and I'm at the time I was living in London the most populous place the most well funded place and I managed to get a GP appointment because I went first thing in the morning I marched myself down and I need to talk to someone right now Mm. and it did there are people possibly with this podcast who don't live in London don't live in places who are in states just like that or perhaps even worse who have figured out that they need to talk to someone and they've figured out they need to talk to a doctor and they just they just can't right you just can't talk yeah. to a GP and you just can't talk to them enough because there are people there are like phone lines like Calm and Samaritans right now who are basically going we are we are more than willing to provide a service here but there, there's a certain point where you're going you can't answer every phone call yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I, I don't want to say can't physically answer every phone call but simply you you can't do everything at some point in time you need to have trained medical practitioners at a point in time where the government's just going it is a real problem um i was probably about the same age as yourself carl when i reached that point i had uh what i think i later realized was a panic attack at my cousin's wedding and on the monday following that weekend went to my own gp had that similar conversation and one of the things that I found was, was that I was sat across from a GP and with all the best will in the world, I felt like you're not the person I should be speaking to. I think it's, it's a crapshoot, right? It is, you are just, it's a shotgun and the bullets go, yeah. and maybe you luck out and get the GP 
who understands what's going on. Maybe you get a GP who listens to you and go, hang on, this is unusual and maybe we should make, give you the right form to fill out so I can give you the right person to talk to. Maybe you, you luck out and get the right person, you know, if you get NHS counselling, maybe you get the right person for NHS counselling or, or you get, you know, I got the first batch I got, I got a in real life therapist and I didn't get on with them so I went, I'm not going to do this no more. Then I got a phone therapist and I, I, went, I don't like you and I don't want to do this. They tried to take them to group therapy and I said, I don't like talking to anyone about this so I don't want to do this. And eventually it took me, eventually it took money, like a large amount of money. Yeah. I got a really good job and they had health insurance and I went, I want to see a therapist and they went, here's a therapist and, they went, and this is my, and we're going to pay for, for your health insurance. And then when I left that job, my therapist went, this is how much money it costs. And I went, Oh my goodness! Um, uh, but I went, you're the only one who's somehow managed to like work out this bizarre onion that is my brain. So I'm going to I basically stop going to the pub as much and went. I need to. It went, if I can cut down from this many pints to this many pints, I'm, I'm talking using my hands. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, it's a podcast. I, can't <laughs> uh, I said, fucking like reduce this many pints and reduce this many cinema trips. I can afford seeing a therapist this often, and I made that change, and that's. That takes a large amount of money. It takes a lot, like someone to be in a headspace where you are able to make those sorts of decisions. And that I like luck, 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 luck to get to this weird state. And even then, I'm not fine. I'm not okay. I'm still a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes like that. And it's just I hear a story. I think at any point in time now, you talk to any friends about you know how oh wow you got these men of struggles and how did you get through it and they're like well there's always a moment of you manage to get yourself in front of the right person and I don't think it's wrong people who think in front of the wrong person I think it's people who are trying their hardest mm. yeah being unable to do uh, there's this adage of at it's very very best the NHS like the NHS should not work it's like a miracle it's a bit like the tube system it's one of these things from a bygone era that was not meant to sustain this many people but it's just full of really hard working people mm. who are just trying their hardest going mate look uh, okay like you're clearly in trouble so maybe fill out this form and maybe I can help you out there was something that somebody told me once uh, about the NHS I was at a, a, a medical conference thing in Manchester and they said the NHS is really good at pulling people out of the water and stopping them from drowning but it's not very good at walking upstream and wondering why they keep tripping and falling into the, the river in the first place. And I think that's almost just the way that it is. I mean, it, it's very difficult to get out of that cycle. Mm. Uh, you know, I think the ship is turning in that we, we are talking about is at a far younger age and this notion of stiff upper lip yeah. it is going away. Did you encounter that? Like with yourself and with any other people? Stiff upper lip? Yeah, the, the kind of... Oh yeah, get I mean, on with it. There are, keep going, keep keep swimming upstream. Kind there's of different context. Well, there's it comes from a different places as well because I'm a black man. I'm from an African household. I'm, my parents are Ghanaian, um, and uh, my dad was the last one I told in my immediate family. So I told my brother, I told my mom, I told my aunt, so my mom's younger sister, who I'm very, very close with. I told my dad last, and when I told him, I'm like, look, I got this. My dad was like. <laughs> Black men don't get depression. And my brother and my brother just stared that like looked through his soul and just shook his head like this is not a joke. Yeah. And I th- was when your dad said that, was that was was that was that partially 
not jokey, but did he mean that? Like, was he? Was I, I think there's a there's, and I'm again. This is only autobiographical. I'm not going to make any comments about black attitudes to mental health compared yeah. to a, in a white household, or whatnot. I'm just we grew up. I grew up in a household that was traditional West African Ghanaian. My dad was very much if you're not bleeding, you don't have to go to the hospital. That's fine. My mum's stance on injuries was very much stop doing silly activities because if you break your arm or hurt your leg, I'm not driving you to Whips Cross Hospital. And that was that. So, uh, and I, I, I grew up mostly indoors because my mum was like, I can't be bothered going to hospital. And my dad grew up in the 80s as a black man in London. And I was like, I don't need any hassle with the police. Yeah. So I was raised pretty much by my parents and Nintendo. My dad is very much like, if you can see it and you can touch it, he believes it. And if you can't, he's very much okay, it might exist, but he's not overly dismissive. He's like, fine. Um, like VAR. Yeah. He's very funny about that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he kind of joked about the way, but I remember that I remember keenly the way my brother just stared at my dad and just like shooting. So I went, nope, this ain't joking. And he went, oh, okay. And even now, I don't think my dad probably, probably, probably understands what goes through my head sometimes when I have these depressive states and whatnot, but he understands that sometimes I ain't feeling fresh. Right. Yeah. And he's like, okay, fine. And I think, and again, is that like his way of understanding it almost? Feeling fresh. Yeah. Um, I, I, what's really interesting nowadays is we do, you know, we, you know my dad and I, we're, my dad and I has the, have a relationship where we only really talk about football because we talk about anything else when we have a fight. Um, <laughs> but but there, are num- there are a number of football players now who have talked about their mental health. And what we have got to a place now is his understanding of mental health has got better through these football players. Because yeah. he, he understands when a football player is having a bad, is having a bad run, of, run of form, right? He, he can understand when a striker is clutching at shots and he's ain't feeding themselves and he's screaming and scratching. He's like, ah! And he's like, well, I don't understand what's wrong with him. He was, you know, he's not doing anything worse, but he goes, you know, he's not taking near post positions or he's not, he's not attacking the ball as he used to. He ain't, he ain't feeling crisp. And I'm like, I'm pointing to myself sometimes. He's like, and he's beginning to put two, two and two together. Yeah. That sometimes... You know, we're not robots and things can go wrong. Obviously, you're a man who works in sport as a journalist, so we wanted to know <clears throat> what it's like in that press box. We want to know the ins and outs and how it all works. <laughs> you want to break on murder? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, there's me watching football as a football fan. And as a football fan, you know, I think maybe... I got to a point in my life recently where I don't have my weekends ruined by football. The Moyes season helped. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I always say the Moyes season was like my great adolescence. I'm like, oh, this is what football is like. You're not always going to win games. This is painful. Um, so yeah, it, it took me it took me a long time in my life to get to a point where I didn't have my day ruined by my football team doing badly. And yeah, anything where you hand over a large amount of your emotional stability onto something else, onto factors you can't control, is, I want to say unwise or unstable, but it's a gamble, right? So, if you're the type of person that your day can be ruined or not by a football team or by a musician or by an actor or by someone else that possibly doesn't even know who you are, that's risky and maybe find a way to not do that. Do you think that's sort of as a more overarching thing? Do you I, think I, I, I don't think that's a mental health situation. I think that's just that's that Carl Anker adult talking to other adult. Do you think that's healthy though? 
kind of men's relationship or anyone's relationship with something that is completely out of your control having such an impact on your emotional well-being there are I think there's pluses and there's you know pluses and drawbacks to everything right so you could not tell me to not get carried away with the World Cup in 2018 right and there was points in that World Cup where I'm not going to get carried away. I'm not going to carry away. I'm not going to believe any of the hype about England. I thought, you know, everyone went, oh, this is a great World Cup for England because there's no pressure. There was pressure. Let's not pretend. It's coming home was was ironic for a little bit. Yeah. And then it stopped being ironic the moment those penalty shootouts went in. Yeah. I remember during those penalty shootouts against Colombia, I didn't watch them. I sat, I was in, I watched in the pub with my friends and I sat underneath the table and I was just praying and I had my head in my hands. I was wearing my Fitbit and my Fitbit was records my heart rate my Fitbit said are you on a treadmill because my, <laughs> uh, my heart rate was doing like 160 180 because I, I, I told my friends I can't do this anymore. I said I can't watch England in a penalty shootout it's, too, it's bad for me and then obviously the good thing finally happened and I was the happiest I've been maybe in months um, and that sort of that roller coaster is you know if they lost that penalty shootout I would have been devastated and obviously after the Croatia game I sort of disappeared after England lost for like two or three hours and I didn't tweet or anything people were legitimately texting me going, <laughs> are you okay because I got swept along we were speaking earlier about that summer of 2018 and that summer Tramway got promoted from the non-league and I would say that I would be fully happy to admit every one of us cried we all cried at the end of that game you were crying at half time, weren't you? Yeah, it, it, was, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. It was. We were emotional wrecks, all of us. And I think what was so nice about it was that it gave us an opportunity to be within one another's company, and our relationship to that club and our relationship to one another are all intrinsically linked. So I suppose in the long winded way I've gone around the car, what I'm kind of getting at is you're obviously got kind of an emotional connection with football as well. Would you say that's been a a positive thing in your life it is a positive but the way you described that there you cried and through football you had that connection with people and I think that's great I think what I think the drawback is when that is your only connection Mm -hmm. and that is your only means to express those feelings so um, I can't cry that well Uh, due to a number of factors I played a lot of rugby I've got like a I've damaged one of my eyeballs and whatnot. and it's very physically hard for me to cry um, but what I've realised in the last two or three years as part of therapy and conversation with people is like it's really important to cry from like a basic evolutionary standpoint yeah. human beings invented crying because we needed a way to show other people I'm hurting but also in a way in a, you know you needed a way to silently show people you're hurting in that when you were cavemen you'd be like I'm hurting but also I don't want to make a noise because there's predators around okay. that's why we cry Seven days of school day. <laughs> Science, it, yeah, it's, it's a very like it's a warning system for pain. Um, so that's why we cry. But so I recently, you know, and one of my friends who I think we should talk about this as well is you know the, the efforts we we, you know, we are talking about men's mental health, but we also should talk about women in men's lives and the pressures we put upon women to get to states where we can talk about this easier. There are loads of mums and sisters and girlfriends and female friends that. Unfortunately, our unpaid therapists before we eventually sort our stuff out, and we should give them credit. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for all putting up with me. Um, and one of my friends basically 
got me in a habit around like 2017 and 2018 she just took me to watch teen dramas because they make her cry and she goes I'm going to show you all these emotional films so you get in the habit of crying so it's not just it's not just you watching England getting knocked out that makes you cry <laughs> because crying is really crying is really really important it releases a whole bunch of hormones and it helps your brain like reset itself and yeah. get it to yeah. like an emotional equilibrium it's really healthy to cry often so now I've got a playlist on YouTube of just things I watch when I need to cry because like my brain will go I need to cry how do I cry number one on that list is the England penalty shootout against Colombia yeah. the um, montage yeah. with, yeah. with the yeah. national yeah. Yeah. so I watch that and the moment um Guy Murray goes, maybe times are changing. Yeah. And it cuts to Brian Robson. I'll start crying. Yeah. And that's my big, I've had a bad day, be at work or at football or whatever, and I need to cry. I'll watch that and I'll cry. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. It's good. And it's good that you've got a way to cry. And like, it's great that when those big moments of football, you can go to your best mate, I love you. And they'll go, I love you back. And you can hug. My if that's your only way, then I'm a bit concerned. Yeah. Right? But I think football has been a really good thing for us in so much as us all go in, we all love Tranmere because we all love football and we all love one another and it gives us that that place to go and feel comfortable with one another and be able to express that emotion. Which is great. My question back to you is when the season ends, do you still hang out in that way? Yeah, we do. Which probably is not good. As, uh, yeah, we do. Probably not as much as Which we do. Which is good. Yeah, right? probably. And you're, and you're right, aren't you? And we often talk about this in so much as before we went to the... I'm going on about the player from the again, but the, even before we went to that playoff final, in fact, it was the last one, it was the one last summer, um, the Newport game, I was packing the many bags of ale that we were taking onto the bus. And my girlfriend, Sophie, her friend, Abby, was around. And she said, oh, I wish I wish we had like a thing like that we all did together, talking about her and her, her girl, with someone have you? And I was like, what do you mean? And she said... She said, you're going to be with all your mates for like 24 hours, basically, all getting drunk and doing the thing that you love. And I was like, no, it's brilliant. I said, but, I said, you haven't got that and you still see your mates as much as I see mine. And I can say, I think we're fairly good at doing it, but the season does end and it does sometimes feel like you get to August. I haven't seen you since May. Yeah. And I think we've had a bit of an excuse in the last few years because our season's been prolonged, that it's kind of given us an excuse to see each other. But I do think that we should make more of an effort to find ourselves in environments that aren't just football environments. So sort of one of my big New, new Year's resolutions is uh, I'm just taking my friends out to dinner more this year. Okay. We were in the group chat like this year we're taking the homies out for dinner. Um, <laughs> and one of my friends, is it, you know, one friend told me that another friend was like, feeling too great. And I was like, oh, I don't know really what I can do, this, this, this. And I went, when was the last time you saw him face to face? And I went, Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. No, just try and see your friends more often, face to face as well. I'm through my job. I moved from London to Southampton, uh, so I, I don't see nearly all my friends face to face as much as I do. But I am now making effort of just getting in the group chats and interacting. And like, this is discipline. It's really hard. It's it takes a while to figure out. Oh, I should. When someone goes, "How are you doing?" Go and how are you doing? And going. Oh, I heard you having a bad day at work. And then going, thanks. How is your job going as well? Yeah. And how is your girlfriend? And like doing that one because, you know, I don't want to say it's just like a a man thing, but a lot of these things you don't see. Do you wonder why football also makes people so angry? This is a huge question that I I, I work on at least every three months because I'm a black football journalist. So therefore, there's like a racist incident all the time. I'm like, why is this happening? Um, There is... 
one someone I used to work with, very intelligent comedian called Harry Flowers, once went our entire year without watching football. Didn't watch football, didn't read football, didn't engage with football. He loves he's, a, he's a football fan. He's a football fan, huge football fan. Just didn't engage for it for a whole year. Uh, and then his big thing at the end of it was most people don't like football. Most people don't like the, the again, the tactical stuff, the in-play stuff. He goes, you don't like football, you're addicted to football. Yeah. And said, so the majority of the reason why you, you do football is because it's just a social thing to do. It's the thing you are conditioned to do on a Saturday. And that was that like, really changed how I view football and how I write about football as well. Of I can tell you about XG, but also, at the end of the day, if Danny Ings chests it down and pings it 30 yards, I'm just going to tell you he pings it from 30 yards. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, you can't put emotion in a spreadsheet yet. <coughs> and I think, and it's that thing of when, you know, when you understand a lot of people go and watch football, not for the idea of football, because it's something you do on a Saturday with your mates. And it's the idea of you're putting your emotional stability or your emotional well-being in the hands of 11 to 18 to 20 people to, to look after on a Saturday. If that thing goes slightly awry, you go, whoa! And you get that strong emotions. Yeah. Like that can be anger, that can be manifest. Um, and you do get, you know, and then, you know, then there's wider conversations about tribalism and, uh, you know, racism and all the sort of things you hear about there. And just sort of other things or other forms of masculinity that will be brought up in another podcast. But I think, on the whole, handing over your emotional well-being to a large group of people on a regular basis, if that's your only means of emotional well-being, is not recommended. Mm-hmm. From me. Um, yeah, there, and there is this one-up, there is constant one-upsmanship about what's a true support and what's this, and it's ultimately just very convoluted dick swinging that <laughs> I don't particularly yeah. find interesting. One thing I will particularly annoys me, and I think we're, we're slowly beginning to realise this is a particularly bad thing we do, is when we mock football teams having empty stadiums. Mm. And you see this happening a lot about Manchester City right yeah. now, of just, you've got all this money, you can't fill your stadium. And you're like, we're in the middle of austerity, yeah. and it's in Manchester, people got jobs, and football tickets are expensive, and you are laughing at the fans for not yeah. there, rather yes. than being annoyed at other factors that like. Do you think that's a, do you think that that thing is is a is a masculinity problem? It's like, a, this is what defines me as a bloke, being a proper football fan, which makes me a better bloke than you. I don't think it's... Like an unique, unique I don't think it's unique to masculinity. Um, I've been in plenty of fandom groups where people will constantly test your ability and knowledge to retain stuff. A lot of these are male-dominated, so I'm a massive comic nerd. And I did have that phase where if I saw a girl wearing a comic thing, I'm like, oh, you don't even read the comics. Yeah. Which, again, I had to have that knocked out of me. Uh, and like similar, I went to certain gigs, and if I saw people wearing t-shirts, you know, why are you wearing a Ramones t-shirt? Name me three Ramones songs. Yeah. That thing. Yeah. I couldn't name you any. Yeah. Uh, but it's that thing of, if you grow up loving a certain thing, and this, this took me years to get my head around. If you grew up loving a certain thing, more people loving it is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And anyone being mad that someone is enjoying something that they also enjoy, you should really like physically stop your knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Go, Why does this make you angry? But I wonder if that's a reaction to people having an issue with their own self-esteem and having to attach something that's tangible, they understand, that defines them because they're not happy about themselves. So they make 
the thing that oh, because I like this thing that nobody else likes that makes me special and then it's, it's like when people go oh I was listening to the Arctic Monkeys before they were famous like that type of thing it's, it's a little bit like that and I don't want to say it is that because you know I again it's that sort of argument of if you got bullied at school for being a bit nerdy what does the, te- the teacher eventually goes then they're bullying you because you're special yeah and which is really dangerous if you stop doing that and you get to that state of this is mine I like this thing and this is mine and you hold it really close to you and if someone else wants it you get really scared because they won't love it in the same way you do and you also get really scared that they might change it yeah so the conversation we're having about VAR right now yeah the conversations we're having about uh, more equal representation in football both on the pitch and in the boardroom yeah the conversations we're having about other laws in the game the conversations we're having about women's football we're seeing certain crowds yeah. going this isn't football this isn't the way I like football this isn't the way I grew yeah. up loving football how dare you change football and they have very very bad reactions whereas what you should be doing is be like oh you want to share let's share which is takes time and it takes people wanting want to be a state of wanting to share this thing and sometimes it takes well in my case it took my mum slapping me across the back head and going share your thing yeah. <laughs> stop being a dickhead uh, just something I wanted to pick up I know it was going a little bit while back um, obviously you said every three months or so you have to come out and do a piece on the fact that our society has done some disgusting behaviour at football matches again Um do you have you begun to hate that? Have you just, like have you have you started to get annoyed by getting every few months this is coming up again? Is anyone kind of um, listening? It, it changes a lot. So sometimes, so I can watch. So when the racism event happened in Montenegro, right? So I was watching. It was Wednesday, Tuesday night. It was a midweek game. Yeah, England versus Montenegro, and I heard I was watching on I was watching on the sofa, and I heard the booing, and I went, oh, and I went, oh no, I went, well this is annoying, and then this is my first season of football journalist, and my phone buzzed up, I went, oh no, I went, oh god, this is my job now, hmm. uh, oh god, I have to, I have to do something here, uh, and I've got an excellent boss and a really really good team around me right now, to when they are really honest to me going. Carl, this is your job and you might have to do this. You're also able to go, I don't want to do this because okay. I don't want to have to do this. And that's really good. And I've now, luckily in recent years, been able to talk to people and bosses and vocalise when I don't want to do this. I also vocalise when, when I think, eh, let's not do this as well. But in 2017, I went to, I chaired... Uh, talk about Black for Black History Month at Leicester University, and uh, I was surrounded by some black academics. And one of them there said, "I know my kids will never live to see the end of white supremacy," and it really hit me. And I remember being six years of age, and my and this is you know mid nineties Stephen Lawrence inquiry was still going on television and uh, I was very very young and Stephen Lawrence's face is on television all the time at this time and I went mom why is this person's always on the TV what's going on and she very much sat me down I went this is what racism is some people aren't going to like you because you're skin color I went that's really dumb and she was that's life your job obviously requires you to work outside of a sort of normal Monday to Friday nine to five how do you kind of deal with like a work life balance it's a hard industry, this being football journalism and 
I'm obviously saying this. I'm not sure how many football journalists will be reading, listening to this. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm just talking to a, a very specific 12 people. But I think everyone, I think everyone gets into states at work where you want to do really, really well at work and then you can sometimes burn up. And I think, you know, there, there's plenty of articles about millennial burnout and people who are, you know, you get to work at nine and you're not leaving until eight and then you go home and you're taking work with you because you, you want to get up the next rung in the corporate ladder and then things don't work, can't work out and then before you know it, you're having dreams about work, you're grinding your teeth in your sleep, it's, it's not working out and you, f- you feel unfulfilled and unhappy and that's like the good version of that the less good version of that is when you start feeling depressive thoughts and whatnot and again I'll talk only autobiographically so I was in a very very bad job situation in 2016 that started off really well so I was unemployed for about seven months got this job promised my boss I was going to give him everything I had and I did I I was if I had a late shift I'd still come to the office there were two instances where I slept in the office, so I could do a late shift and then do an early shift, of which I found out after the fact that was illegal because the work hours between late shifts and early shifts, the gap was too short. So I was doing things like that. Um, I was doing work on my days off. I wasn't really getting weekends. I, like I said, there was a point in time where I basically couldn't handle how much I was doing. And I just sort of shaved my head and I wasn't really sh- sharing this information with people, but sort of just doing bad stiff upper lip stuff so drinking a lot being quite annoyed you know the old masculine stereotype of punching walls um, so there's a crack in one of my old bedroom walls where I punched it when I was annoyed at something um, whereas what I should have been doing is talking to people and, and setting boundaries and going no actually no boss I'm not going to do that shift or I've worked that late shift maybe I'm not going to do an early morning shift or not going to the office where things like that happen um, and that's taken a while for me to understand and I think we are now hopefully getting better as a people and as a workforce at explaining stuff you don't like and stuff that you realize you're entering areas that aren't beneficial. Um, I'm speaking from a place of enormous privilege. Uh, I've got a really good boss right now uh, to the point where I am taken aback by how sound my boss is. Is that kind of hard to learn because I suppose when people look at you going, so I, for instance, I'll take my, I, my job doesn't really go home. Um, so you finish at five and I don't really tend to try my hardest to stress about that job. I'll have a 20 minute little rant to my girlfriend in a car. I get seen as like laid back and, and, and calm and I, what I kind of think they're trying to say is, are you a bit lazy? Is that, is that, is that kind of like what you're trying to fight when you, when you're trying to, Yes, those and like it, it's 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 my first year in a job, and I want to impress, and I want to give people around me who I've you know in my head I'm like all these people have invested a lot in you, and you want to you want to I want to repay that investment plus something. Whereas what years of therapy and talking to these people who I have imagined this investment in have said is you've already repaid this and then some. Chill out, yeah. like you, and also you're not a robot. You're allowed to rest and. I think, again, only speaking for myself, it, I have that problem where I can understand problems in other people, but just will not pay attention to myself. So, uh, Wayne Rooney ran himself into the ground because he played through injury and played way too many games of football and should have just chilled out and maybe not played as many tournaments. 
here I am working from 11 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. What the? Carl, stop! I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, why is Alexis Sanchez bad? Alexis Sanchez didn't become bad overnight because he played in back-to-back Copa Americas and he went to and he played a ridiculous style of football for Arsenal. So it's no wonder he was knackered by the time he went to Manchester United. Hi, I'm Carl Anka. I work eight days in a row and I only sleep like five hours a night. Stop it! Yeah, it's- and it's that sort of talking to other people around you. You need to get. You need to really, really talks. And uh, so there is. There's this idea I always talk about, about the imagined boss mm. and like the, the imagined shadowy boss who isn't your boss. So I, I always think about how it took me so long to tell my first ever boss like, hey, I've got mental health conditions because the conversations I would have with my imagined boss in my brain, that boss was like, you're terrible, I'm going to fire you. And then I finally did have a conversation with my boss and he went, oh, okay, well, well, you know, it's not the best, but let me know how this works. And if, if you're not feeling great, please be honest with you. And I said, what? And in my brain, went, why did I not have this conversation with you, the real boss, yeah. instead of the imaginary one? And that's, you know, part of living with mental health conditions and having these depressive spells is that your brain plays tricks on you. Yeah. You know, yeah, you can't, it can be very, very hard to see the forest for the trees. But a lot of the time now is me, after the last three or four years of going through this, it's just being able to tell myself, wait, are you sure this will happen? Or have you decided this will happen and now you're not even yeah. going to try? And it's, if I need a day off, ask for the day off rather than just sitting in your hands and then just quietly yeah. moping. Or if I need, if I need, if I need to book a holiday, and I'm so bad at booking holidays because I've got, this conversation, I've got like a very weird, crappy masculine sense of if you take holidays, you're somehow weaker. Yeah, because uh, you need to be at work and you need to be constantly proving yourself. So I can I can only really go on it for five days because then I, then I just get like, my anxiety just spikes. Because okay. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I have to be working because I'm not working. I'm like losing pace with everyone else. Whereas what I should be doing is I work really hard for this. I should enjoy myself. Yeah, and that's something I need to like get better. Um, so I I want I really want to write a novel, and I've got this notion in my head. I wanted to finish this novel by the age of thirty. And my friend recently said, "What happens if you finish this book?" at the age of 31. I said, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a bad thing then. I went, I'll just pull it. I guess so. Write the book when you need to write the book. You don't have to put these deadlines ahead of yourself. It's going to be fine. There's a lot of this um, comparison and contrasting uh, theme that's kind of all over um, social media really that's where the big hotbed of this lies um, so much so that I was flicking through Twitter the other day and there was a comparison between Leighton Baines and Ashley Cole amazing which was ludicrous uh, yeah yeah. yeah I, I couldn't work it out apparently Leighton Baines is, is better because he stayed in the Premier League longer but I don't really understand why okay <laughs> <laughs> um, so but there's a constant need to try and go was is with the Liverpool and United teams of 99 would Jordan Henderson get in that midfield? Okay. Do you feel that kind of ruins football? Becomes a little bit too much? Becomes a little bit... Uh, and again, I don't want to say social media as in... Because social media is not this like blanket evil or, or some sort of great infection. I've worked at some of these social media companies and I believe social media can be a force for good. I believe it can be a force for great evil. Um... Uh, the way I describe it is social media basically gave everyone a hammer 
Okay. And some people were using it to build stuff and make nice tools, and some people were using it to like clobber other people overhead. Um, how you choose to use your hammer is ultimately up to you. Also, some people should probably not be given hammers in the first place. I like that. I <laughs> yeah. like that a lot. That yeah. is good. Um, and I, look, I've, I've got, I'm in the career I am because of social media. I, I've got many of my best friends that because of social media raise eyebrow because of social media as well. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just sort of, don't get in a position where you're just trying to make some, if you're in a position where you're trying to make someone's day worse, because that's the only way it makes your day better. What for? So what has changed is as you get more followers on Twitter, and this is a weird way to think, like you get to like a thousand and you realize, okay, so I've got a thousand and a thousand people with my tweets. Once you get past 10,000, Twitter changes once you get past 10,000 followers because then you get to a state, a state where basically if you tweet good morning, someone will most likely tweet good morning back to you. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I try and make sure I'm, the stuff I'm putting out into the world is on the whole more positive. I still tweet way too much inane nonsense. It does. It does come across positive. By the way. I've, I've <laughs> enjoyed having followed you for the last like week or two. I, I've I've quite enjoyed it. Yeah. I try not to tweet too much about things that, that I hate because I think it's just giving fuel to people that sometimes thrive off hate. So I've blocked a number of shock jocks, and I tell my friends not to engage with things they hate. Um, I try and talk a lot of things that I really really like. I try and spotlight smaller things that I really really like. I will, you know if there's job opportunities going, especially in my field, I'm always going to try and retweet those. Um, my DM is always open for people that want advice and career stuff and whatnot. Um, and I, I think Twitter's a force for good, so I want to try and use it for good. I am still going to get these jokes off. I suppose one of the things that, that we wanted to speak to you about was, as you said, now you're up to 20, 22,000 people on Twitter. So have you kind of had a different experience with dealing with kind of Feedback, feedback and criticism now that your profile is slightly higher than it used to be? Yeah. So, I'd say about a year ago, maybe a year ago to six months ago, uh, I just started getting a lot more people saying I'm annoying. Just like, shut up, go away, why are you here? Um, so I, I do a Totally Football Show podcast and some people don't like it when I'm on a Totally Football Show podcast. Some people are like, oh God, not him again. Um, and some people vocalise that very, very clearly to the point where if the subsequent episode doesn't have me on, they'll go, thank God, at Anchorman 616 <laughs> on the Holy Football Show. To, you know, and once you know, I was on the sofa with, with one of my friends and, and they'd seen me look at this and I was about to tell this person, you don't have to tweet me saying you don't like me. Yeah. You don't have to be that person. And I went, just leave it alone. Because they could see me getting wound up. I went, this is... Because that's the next hour, two hours of yeah. the day gone. And you're giving that person oxygen yeah. as well. Uh, and, uh, and I went, oh, it just really bugged me. And I did two or three, I had two or three things where I was, so I was on Totally Football Show, I was on the BBC, and I had a little bit where I was national. And I was really, really proud of these things. And I just people going, you're awful, you're terrible. And uh, it really got to me. And I talked to these things about my therapist and whatnot. Um, what's going on? Should I quit? Should I not do these things? And it, it took a, slightly older football journalist to go you're doing the right thing it's just what's happened is you've crossed over to that threshold where sort of if you're doing anything on Twitter there's a small percentage of people that follow you and dislike you and then as you get bigger that percentage yeah. will stay the same but also it just gets bigger yeah. 
and as a, you're still one person I'm still one person one but person. sort of when you have 200 followers maybe two people hate you of that percentage like that 1% hates you and then that 1% just got bigger and bigger as I yeah. got closer to 20,000 and that's how I'm thinking of it now of just there is a percentage of people that just don't like me and that's that's fine it's not fine I'm really really because I'm conscious about it and it hurts all the time like please be nice to me but also I just got to get on with it and uh, I've got a just sort of accept it as a a natural byproduct of what you do to a degree obviously there is there is good honest feedback and there is people that just don't like me so I like writing about XG and if someone comes up to me and it's like Carl please stop writing about XG and it is very much like you've written about XG three or four times could you please give me something else I'll go you know what fair enough let me get on the phone calls and start talking to a coach that's a that's how I'd like to be addressed yeah. when a stranger goes fuck off with your spreadsheets yeah that's different. Yeah. Um, right. So then you're like, then so you is go, that even even? I suppose even now, like, you're 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 obviously not been uh, a genius for like 20, 30 years or something. You're still, you would say, still in your relative infancy in your current current role. Does it affect you as much now as it did maybe six nine months ago? Have you found a way of dealing with it that that, that allows you to? it not to affect you as much or does it still yes and no um, obviously as, as we're listening to this I, I live several miles away from my friend group so I, I live in Southampton I live in London neither all my friends my family are in London so I do sometimes go man I'll equip all my friends and stuff for this and then obviously you, know, you catch yourself and you go why hang on remember what you're doing this for remember you've got loads of people around you that really enjoy and appreciate you one thing I'll say to everyone listen to this podcast I'll say to everyone in any sort of working profession is uh, if you have a job that requires you to use a computer set up a folder on your computer and just title it compliments and anytime you get a compliment via email or via any sort of written compliment just screenshot it stick it in the compliments folder so anytime imposter syndrome comes up or you think you're crap at your job or you should quit and you're feeling like you don't you're not good at this and you're not worth it just go through the compliments folder and just read it and then just you know you just go hang on two three weeks ago my boss said that was great two three weeks ago my friend said that was good so and so this person this client said that was good and just have that on deck always in whatever job you do just have a place where you have on record people calling you good at something so when you do get in these states well, I don't know why I'm doing this you can check it um, have, have that work friend where you can just vent um, and also like when you're talking to your friends get really good at saying hi I'm about to vent at you <laughs> oh. knowing how you feel when there is something sat in your chest and knowing how to get that off is really really important and sometimes it is venting sometimes sometimes it's going for a run sometimes it is just going to the pub and having a yeah. beer if you yeah. drink sometimes it's going to play video games like you need there's catch and releases to everything okay so Carl if you can imagine yourself talking to your younger probably as handsome self. Yeah. Um, what would you kind of advise that younger self? I think the one, the phrase I use quite often is the ship is stronger than the storm. Okay. Like you go through choppy waters, but um, the ship is stronger than the storm. And also you got to look for, out for the lighthouses and the anchors out there, pun intended. It was like your friends just trying to help steer you the way. Um, it can be really, really, really hard 
when you really you get in these states where you think you're absolutely alone and you're worthless and no one really cares and if you just disappear nothing will happen but it's very hard to go through this life alone it's very hard to go through this life without having meaningful impact on at least three or four people and that's maybe one of them is just your parents you've got other people that like there are always going to be people who who like you and, and, and need you and I think I, I, I tweet about this a lot about how my like general piece of advice is to try and get to a place in your life where you have four hobbies uh, one you can do by yourself one that forces you to go outside one that forces you to meet people from different walks of life uh, and then just one bonus drinking is not a hobby <laughs> neither is having sex try and find as many things as possible and as many groups as possible where if you didn't turn up someone would message you and went why didn't you turn up yeah and not in like a why didn't you turn up but also a, are you okay so selfish in the world but it's so it's such a good grounding experience but oh I exist in the world people I don't want to say rely on me people need me yeah and people miss you when you're not there people miss you and people like you and, and like you said about assumptions it can be in those bad states, it can be so easy to assume everyone hates you and you have that sort of nightmare where all your friends are talking behind your back or you imagine there's like a WhatsApp where it's just every, it's the same group chat, but it's just without you and they're all calling you. <laughs> yeah. They're all calling you a dickhead. And you like, always imagine when someone hasn't responded, it's because they're in the other chat. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you've got those fears and like getting, getting into a point in life where you have that and you have good people in your life that do this. So, um, yeah, for, uh, for a lot of people, it's the football. Yeah, a lot of people, it's their football. You know, you go and watch a team on a football on a Saturday, and if you don't turn up to the pub at one o'clock, everyone's like, "Where are you?" So that's good. Find another one, and find another one, and then find one more, and then find ones that mean you're not just talking to other blokes, but also you're talking to women as well. Find one that makes you talk to someone of a different religion, creed, or, or background, or like different class as well, because then it just opens up pathways and different ways of the world, and that was something. Uh, like I'm getting better at doing and like the compliments folder was something that got told to me recently uh, and one thing when I was unemployed and I say this to all my mates who if they go through moments of unemployment or anyone who graduates recently when you're unemployed just make sure you wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning yeah right just yeah. tiny things like that because if you're if you're on the job search if you wake up at 10 that means you're sending emails at 12 rather than waking up at 1 and sending emails at 4 so you're kind of on the same calendar as everyone yeah, else yeah uh, and like read as much as possible read widely read stuff you like read stuff you don't like and also think about why do I not like this stuff and also think why do I why do I like this stuff um, like you've got a mobile phone you've got a smartphone these things are more powerful than machines that put man on the moon and made Jurassic Park and it's got access <laughs> it's got access to YouTube so you can use these things to learn so much about like languages and, and like getting a hobby where you make stuff with your hands can be really nice so I like to cook. Some people get really into sewing. I, I mess around with yarn. These aren't magical silver bullets for when you're feeling depressed or going through mental health conditions. And like I said at the start, any conversation that talks about mental health that doesn't talk about government funding on the NHS is incomplete. So also, I am going to tell you, like, start being effing angry at the government right now and start seeing what you can do at a grassroots level to help mobilise people and help people. Once you start doing that stuff, it feels addictive and then you start to feel better about yourself. And I'm really, this sounds awful. Sometimes it's okay to feel good that you did a good thing. Yeah. yeah.
Welcome back, and uh, welcome back to Aunt Katie and Ryan as well. One of the, the big things that, that Carl touched on there was was race and, and kind of how mental health will maybe be dealt with differently with different community and societal backgrounds. And he said that his dad said, black men don't get depressed. And whilst that is, is a soundbite, quite an amusing thing to hear. And I think when we were driving down, we were having some conversations about maybe how these topics might be approached differently, depending on what your culture is. When when we heard it, I think we did laugh, but it was it was completely relevant. You know, we've got so many different cultures. Um, his heritage is built upon being proud, being a man, being strong. And uh, I think when when we get into that, it's quite nice to hear that he was trying to break down that barrier with his dad. You know, I think he talks about um, he related to football. So if a striker's not being being fresh, you know, he's not taking those chances. You know, Carl said, "Look, that's what I feel like sometimes." So I think that was a that was a really nice way of saying it. Just to touch on what Ant just said, Dan, what I found very interesting was that I think he actually referenced my dad was a black man in the eighties, and he almost said it in a way that was everybody knows how that must have been for a black man in the eighties, when in reality, only black people would know what that was like in the eighties. But it must have been a really tough time. And they touched on the fact that they almost didn't want any bother from anybody to the point where he would stay inside to avoid any incidents and to avoid um, maybe going to the hospital and, and having to explain yourselves and that. That must be really difficult to live in that fear. But it almost transpired that his dad had that stiff upper lip attitude towards mental health, despite probably going through some, some tough times himself, where his car was very open about it. But his experience from his family was, I think, his brother, who's probably the same generation as him, was very much open and and let's talk about it. And his dad struggled with it. Um, and I think that just shows you as well as it being race, it is still generational and the different experiences those races have had. As you say, Carl's approach to it was so different. And he touched upon quite a lot of things to do with around the government and NHS and funding and, and access to services and how lucky he felt when he was able to get an appointment with his GP. Katie, you obviously work, uh, you know, in conjunction with sort of maybe services that are outside of the NHS's remit. How yeah. much more difficult can it be for, for people from different cultures to kind of access those services? I think it can be extremely difficult for people from ethnic minorities, different cultures, to access different mental health facilities because... There's still a lot of stigma, a lot of judgment, a lot of prejudice, um, which on such cultures can evoke a lot of fear in them reaching out and, and being understood and being accepted. And, you know, a lot of people with different cultural heritage have different values to largely what people in Western society do. So I think it's really important for them to realise also that, you know, at the moment within the NHS services such as Access and CBT, which is one of the most advocated therapies that's offered, there's a, a massive, massive waiting list. Um, so there's barriers for all people in accessing those therapies, but there's a lot of culturally specific groups in local communities um, and they've been born not only out of a need um, for more culturally specific groups, um, but also because of the lack of resources that the NHS are able to offer. So it's just about accessing 
local services in your local community, seeing what's available, seeing what's online, see if it's culturally specific, because it's really important that you do try and access, and there are a lot of local services, a lot of community groups, a lot of online community groups as well. It's really important that they are culturally suited to your needs. So then you feel able to not only access those groups of support, but also to, to realise and recognise that your cultural values will be understood from that particular support system. And obviously at the beginning of this conversation, at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about things that we miss about being on lockdown. And Carl talked quite broadly about the importance of socialising, the importance of hobbies and in terms of creating those social networks and creating those groups that provide you with support. And how did it make you feel in terms of what you perceive to be your social network built from your kind of hobbies and, and social social interactions? I think that probably the most important aren't the hobbies because you get you, you get everything. You get the, the people that you meet, you get the enjoyment out of the hobby. Even if it's I don't know, knitting, you know, you see you see the old women have got it locked, got it right, haven't they? Do the do the knitting, you can meet everyone, the book clubs, you know, there's loads and loads of stuff that you can do with it. They're really, really special as well, and they, they build that community. Going back to the, the, the therapy question, I think one of the, the, the biggest things that resonated with Carl, as he said when he said he couldn't afford to pay for the therapist when his insurance ran out, um, when I first tried to access uh, mental health services through the NHS, I got put on a six-month waiting list for CBT, at which point I was recommended a psychotherapist who I went and saw, I think, three times. But it was not a million miles off being about £100 an hour. And after about three goes of it, despite the fact that it was helping, it was just too expensive. It just wasn't something I was physically able to afford without having to give up significant things in my life. And as Anne's just said there, I didn't know what the sort of detrimental effect of giving up those things would be. Sitting there listening to that, what did you kind of think about about that aspect of what Carl was saying? I almost felt like it was it's a bit of a catch-22 because... We're in this really sort of sweet spot at the moment where people are generally talking a bit more and are encouraged to talk more, whether it's posters, radio, TV, we're often seeing the phrases, it's okay not to be okay and to talk. So the next barrier after talking is probably seeking medical help or at least some element of professional help. Um, so when somebody finally opens up, which we've found out throughout this series, that that can be the biggest step in the whole journey, that taking that step forward to say I'm struggling, to then face another barrier and be told, oh, I'm sorry you're struggling, but you're going to have to wait six months, or I'm sorry you're struggling, it's going to be £150 an hour. It must just feel like your whole world's crashed down on, on you because you've taken all that positive momentum to take that step forward for it to feel like it's been taken away. The things in your life that a medical professional will probably tell you to do like for example if people take sick from work with depression they're actually told but don't sit in your house go and go out and have a meal go and do some exercise you're encouraged to stay active that gets taken away from you because you've got to offset it against the cost for medical help and i don't want to get too political as you've said but it's almost catch-22 because the more people that speak up the more stretched the services get Katie, obviously in the work that you do, I suspect that you'll come across a lot of people who are in a, a similar boat, who've tried yeah. to act services and, and find it really difficult. The one thing for me that I consistently hear is when people are struggling with their mental health, it's because they don't always understand what it is that they're actually 
feeling or what they're going through or what they're thinking and there's a lot of confusion um so a lot of the work that I do is I do a lot of education around your mental health you know what are the things that you need to put in place on a daily basis to try and keep your mental health in a positive place you know similarly to your physical health what are the things that you do each and every day to try and promote better physical health um but when people get to the point where they are struggling with their mental health um and they do feel brave enough or have the courage to reach out for them to then access a service at a point where it's taken a lot for them to have the ability to feel comfortable to reach out for there not to be a service you know in the NHS that is able to offer you counselling or therapy within you know a matter of weeks um it's it's really really unfortunate but one other thing as well I was thinking when you were just talking it's not always the first therapist that is best suited to you so there's a lot of things against us in this country you know there's the barriers to to feeling able to to reach out then there's the barriers to accessing the care then there's also barriers that can be faced culturally when you access a therapist then there's also barriers to is this therapist right for me am i right for this therapist because you've got to build up a rapport with a therapist. You've got to feel like you're in a safe space, that you can trust that person, that they get you as an individual. They get, you know, the things that are important to you. And with the NHS at the moment, with the lack of resources and they're overburdened, even before, you know, coronavirus, it, it, you know, you talk an 18 months waiting list for CBT. Um, to then engage with someone and feel like this therapist isn't actually best suited for me. I don't think you would then have the option to say, well, I would like a different therapist. And Anne, I think you and I have spoken about this quite a few times, really, um, about what are those things that, that you can do within yourself to be able to help with your mental health? Yeah, I mean... There's various different apps, you know, the click of a button, you can download an app that could probably change your life um, and can just give you a, a completely different outlook on what you're going through and a different mindset, which is which is what the key is, I think. Um, I, I personally, I use Headspace, you know, I, I, I used it a little bit back probably when I was around 20. I enjoyed it, didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, religiously but you know during this this lockdown now I'm, I'm coming away from a computer at, at half four or 28 minutes past <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and going upstairs and, and, and just making time to have 10 minutes to yourself and 10 minutes is such a short amount of time throughout the day but that effect that you know just listening to someone else and, and just you know doing a few breathing exercises and and just generally trying to get a different outlook is is really really good just touching on what katie says in the same way that you know a therapist might not suit you well my way might not suit everyone else's um, i think that's really important to say it's not a it's not one fix it's not one box we're more complex than that and i think when we when we 
discuss mental health sometimes you know we we often you know talk and open up that might not be the way for someone you know yeah. maybe write mm-hmm. something so yeah. there's loads of different avenues that you can go down and it's just about finding and tailoring the the right one for you i just wanted to touch on something actually um what i find especially with the men to campaign is that at the moment it's brilliant that we're trying to promote you know reach out talk more open up you know within within the male population largely who who don't feel sometimes able to do that um but what you just said then dan um just triggered something in my mind which was we are advocating people to speak out more but we do also need to recognize that that's not everyone's bag and you can't force people to speak out because you know it's therapeutic and it helps you offload your feelings and your emotions but like you said you know people need to to realize that not everybody works the same way and that there are other ways of expressing emotion and negative thinking and feelings and that's not just through talking that can be exercise and that can be spending time with other people it can be you know being creative and painting and learning new skills so as much as I'm a massive advocate for people speaking out on how they feel you've got a long way to go for some people who don't feel able to do that and may never feel able to do that as much as we can encourage them and promote that there's other avenues for them to express how they feel and it's not always just through talking so big thanks to, to Ant, to Ryan and to Katie for joining me today. No problem. No worries. Thanks for having us. And big thanks to, for you all for listening. Uh, I think before we wrap up, Ant and I obviously spent the day with Carl and, and we just like to reiterate how generous he was at his time and how friendly he was. And he really was a top bloke. Um, I think you wanted to, to highlight his, his excellent Twitter feed, Ant. Yeah, his, uh, his Twitter feed is uh, Anchorman616 and... I've got to be honest, it's one of the funniest Twitter feeds I've read for a very, very long time. Really fresh, really bright, breezy. Doesn't clog your, your feed up with any negative stuff. So he's just a great guy. I think I tweeted him the other day. Um, <laughs> I think he offered out the next person to give him a cup of tea would be his husband. So I think I've ruined my chances, but um, <laughs> it was funny nonetheless. So he's a great guy and when we went down he was he was really really nice and and just a top bloke as you said yeah absolutely um i, I i'd let you be my husband if you wanted <laughs> we'll talk about that off air <laughs> um but yeah as i say thanks to everyone for listening our, uh, before we leave you with with carl's quickfire questions uh, our next interview is with alex hay which will be with you on monday which will be episode six which is the last episode of series one We'll then have a little two-week break and then we'll be back with Series 2. We've got plenty more interesting stuff to come. Um, and as usual, you can find us on the Twitter, which is at Mark and underscore man. And use the hashtag ways to talking, lads. Thanks for listening. Who's your favourite player of all time? Oh, mate. <laughs> can I tell you the player I write the most about? Go on. Go on. Didier Drogba. Because he ended the Civil War. Didier Jogway is one of the greatest players the Premier League's ever seen yeah. and it has nothing to do with what he did on the football pitch and everything to do about what he did in 2005 where he grabbed a TV camera and went to the people of Ivory Coast I ask for forgiveness lay down your weapons let's have violent free protests let's have violent let's have violence free democratic voting and everyone on Ivory Coast went yeah son 
because he's did a fucking drop. Yeah. <laughs> so earlier on today, we stopped at a service station, and Danny and I went to Subway. Danny proceeded to have a tuna Subway, which I was disgusted at. So it caused a lot of conversation on our WhatsApp group whether that was acceptable or not. What Subway would you go for? Uh, during my sixth form going years, I had Meatball Marion on Tuesdays when it was the discount one, but I tend to have an Italian BMT with um, onions, lettuce, tomato, jalapenos, and ranch dressing. But they've got really ranch dressing now. I know you don't do a lot of supermarket big shops. <laughs> if you were going to do a supermarket big shop, where do we go? Uh, big Asda is the one I'm doing in Southampton. And I'm a, my, I call him my friend. I've never met him before in my life. There's just a guy on Twitter called Adam Mooney who um, just... He's like Twitter bio says a fan of Big Asda, and he's like I'm going Big Asda. Uh, he's the he's the reason why I used the term no danger. I've never met the guy. He's just really really funny in like a really simple small way. I really want to unite. Yeah, with, he's, with he's a lovely bloke, and he just he just believes in Asda and saying the word no danger. And I now say no danger, uh, and I've never met the guy. It's sort of like if someone like knocks into me and they spill a drink. Ah, like, oh, no danger. Do you lick the yogurt lid? Yes. Yeah, I think that's normal. Yeah. Hang on. So, do you lick the yogurt lid in front of other people? Yes. Ah, oh, see, I'm not at that stage. Do you scrape off with the spoon at that no. point, or do you just jib the lid altogether? I get too nervous and just, just jib the lid. Just jib it off. A lot of yogurt you're missing out on there, but actually, what I started doing is leaving the yogurt in the fridge, going down to the canteen, eating everything else, coming back up, and when I'm in the, the safety space of my own office, uh, having the yogurt later on, and, and going there. So I, I can. I rarely wear white because I'm just like oh, blue, just spilling food all the time. <laughs> and I am very often the if I get a burrito and I bring it back to the office, I will put the burrito in a bowl right. and just eat the burrito yeah. in a bowl. And Burritos everyone, are very difficult to eat. Everyone's looking at me, why are you eating from bowl? Well, all the spillage goes in the bowl, and I get a little little dessert. People call you gross. Oh, this that, this is this is me in the office. I was that I was that employee. <laughs> Right, so uh, Tramia played Man United on the best pitch anyone has ever seen yep. back in January. Um, how nervous were you in the first six minutes? Can I be really real with you? Didn't watch it. I did not watch it. Oh. It's a typical United fan. <laughs> just check the score, but yeah, yeah. I knew that was going to happen. I want to ask you, what are your most common shouts to the TV when you're watching a game of football? And I have this thing where I'll be watching it, and it doesn't matter what level it is. It can be the Champions League final, and I let it with a. It's just not good enough, that. It's just. It, what are you doing that for? Good. What are you doing that for? That's and you go full Jamie Carragher, full Jamie. Is that about it? Why have you done that? I'm a fan of the Andy, Andy Townsend. Better. Yeah. <laughs> I do that in the press box this season. And yeah. Two or three people going, look at me. What are you? Who are you? Because I'm still doing my TV shouts in the stadium. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to give you a scenario. The first game is a draw. Yep. You know, the fits and spits, England have done okay. The second game, we were expecting more. We were expecting more. And we're now 30 minutes into the third game. We need a win. Yep. And it's still not quite clicking. And then there's a little period. The ball goes to the fullback, into the midfielder, out to the other fullback, a little bit of play. Better from England. (laughs) That's a better from England. That's always the shout. So on a Monday night, if there's three passes put together, better from England. I think the last thing I, I shouted at the TV was, I think I was watching I was watching a Nats Forest game, and I was watching Sammy Amiobi. <laughs> and he ran through like a couple of people, I think it was against Cardiff the other day, 
And then he did this massive air shot. I'm like, what the fucking point of that? <laughs> Sorry, Sammy. Sorry. Il va rien, il va rien. Du nord et du sud, du centre à l'ouest. Vous avez vu, on vous a prouvé aujourd'hui que toute la Côte d'Ivoire peut cohabiter, peut jouer ensemble pour un même objectif. Qualifier pour le, se qualifier pour le mondial. Vous nous avez promis que cette fête allait rassembler le peuple. Aujourd'hui, on vous demande, s'il vous plaît, on se met à genoux. Pardonnez. 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 Le seul pays, le seul pays de l'Afrique qui a toutes ses richesses ne peut pas sombrer dans la guerre comme ça. S'il vous plaît, déposez tous les armes. Faites les élections, organisez les élections et tout ira du mieux. On veut s'amuser. Arrêtez vos fusils là. On veut s'amuser. Arrêtez vos fusils là. 